Hello, it's the 1st of March 2017 at 1 o'clock Eastern Time and this is Student Affairs Live, the online learning community for student affairs educators. I'm your host, Heather Shea from Michigan State University and I use she, her, hers pronouns. On today's live broadcast, I'm talking with a rather large panel of scholars, practitioners, and current graduate students about engaging and supporting graduate and professional students on campus. Before I introduce my, my guests, I need to give a shout out to the folks who make these free webcasts possible. All of our episodes are free and easy to access in the video archives at highredlive.com. So take a listen, go visit, um, and you can subscribe to our iTunes podcast as well. Um, and that is all made possible by ACPA, College Student Educators International. Support for Student Affairs Live is one of the many ways that ACPA provides innovative professional development. Visit myacpa.org to discover other opportunities, including the 2017 convention coming up later this month. Student Affairs Live is also a part of the Hired Live Network. Our episodes offer you direct access to the best and brightest minds in education. Be a part of our live broadcast by sharing your knowledge, and you can participate in the, the discussion today by tweeting us using the hashtag HiredLive. And thank you to my friend and colleague, Alex Sylvester, who is once again moderating today's back channel. Higher Ed Live is also produced by M. Stoner, a digital first agency committed to tailored solutions that trusted by thousands of higher ed educators. M. Stoner webinars are jam-packed with timely, strategic, and actionable knowledge. Check out their library of on-demand content from digital storytelling to myth-busting websites, which we're tweeting out now. So graduate students is our topic today. Um, we're talking about graduate students across all disciplines, medical students, law students, postdoctoral fellows, um, and we're talking about how they are uniquely situated on our college and university campuses. Whether they're recent undergraduates going straight through or full-time staff returning for their degrees, um, graduate degrees, the diversity among the range of needs is vast. So we are going to be talking today about a number of issues related to graduate students, support, and engagement. Um, and I'm really thrilled to have such a broad panel with many different backgrounds and experiences today. Um, and I also need to give a quick shout out to my own graduate support network. Um, I am a doctoral student myself, third-year doctoral student here at Michigan State University. And uh, my reading group, Team Read, um, helped me today with developing the questions that we'll be discussing. So thank you to Tom, Carrie, and Amico. So let me introduce our panel, and then we will get on with the questions. Um, so we have today on our panel, Nicole Johnson. Hi, Nicole. Um, Nicole is a doctoral candidate in higher education program at Virginia Tech. And she is also the current chair of the ACPA Commission for Graduate and Professional Student Affairs. She'll give a broader um, introduction here in a, in a moment. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you. Also on today's broadcast is Carmen McCollum, an assistant professor at Eastern Michigan University, who also serves on our directorate for ACPA, um, the Commission for Graduate and Professional Student Affairs. Welcome, Carmen. Thank you. Dr. Matt Helm is the Director of Graduate Student Life and Wellness at Michigan State University. Hi, Matt. Hi. I should have said Dr. Carmen McCallum, so let me go back and add that. Um, Paul Artali, um, welcome, Paul. 
is an academic program manager for graduate student engagement at the Rackham Graduate School at the University of Michigan. Hi, Paul. Hi, Heather. Uh, we are representing Michigan here today, un unintentionally somewhat. <laughs> um, and then Dr. Sean Robinson, hello, Sean, hello. is an associate professor of higher education and student affairs at Morgan State University and also past chair of the commission that I mentioned. So we, uh, I'm again, grateful to all of you for joining today. Uh, I already see that we have a great audience on the back channel. Please send us your questions and we will do our best to incorporate them as they come in. So I'd love for each of you to give kind of a broader introduction beyond just the titles that I read um, and talk a little bit about your scholarly interests and, and you know, why particularly this topic is, is relevant and important to you. So uh, Carmen, we're gonna talk with you first. Okay, um, so thank you for that wonderful introduction. Thank you for all who are out there in internet land who are watching this uh, broadcast right now. Um, so again, my name is Carmen McCallum and I'm a faculty member at Eastern Michigan University in the Department of Leadership and Counseling. And I became interested in graduate education in particular while I was a student at the University of Michigan. Um, I initially thought I would be looking at access for undergraduate students into college, but during my studies there, I realized that a lot of scholarship did not particularly focus on graduate students. So I became increasingly um, curious about how graduate students uh, proceed through their programs and become successful. And so I focus uh, my scholarship now on that particular area. Um, the way I like like to talk about it is I'm very interested in graduate students very broadly, how they get into graduate school, what happens to them while they're there, and then what happens at the other end once they graduate? What are their career focuses and how do they maintain a successful career? Wonderful, thank you so much for being here. Matt, tell us a little bit about you. Well, thank you for having me. It's good to be here with you all and welcome to uh, the nation um, for, for all the, those that are joining us. My role is as Director of Graduate Student Life and Wellness, but I started as, um, a director of graduate career services. That's my entry into understanding the unique needs of graduate students and in particular wrote a dissertation on professional identity. And I was trying to understand myself as I was being socialized into the profession of student affairs and socialized into academia as a PhD in higher education. And then brought those lenses to Michigan State University where part of my own research uh, when I was looking at student affairs professionals, it was such a limited um, knowledge base around professionals in student affairs. So I had to look at law and I had to look at medicine and I had to look at uh, academia to have some uh, older professions to, to compare to student affairs. So from there ended up in one of these first jointly appointed positions in student and, and the graduate school and student affairs. So I report 50% to the associate provost for graduate education and 50% um, to the Vice President of Student Affairs. So I'm truly bridging the gap between academic and student affairs. And so, and it's like night and day, um, honestly, in some cases. So one day I'm sitting at the, the, the director's meeting in student affairs with all the directors um, on the student affairs side. And then the next day I'm with all the associate provosts and the assistant deans in the graduate school. And so what I've done <clears throat> over the last 10 or so years is I've tried to help 
student affairs understand the unique needs of graduate students and to integrate and translate support services for graduate students from the Division of Student Affairs. And I, on the other side, I've tried to help the academic side understand the profession of student affairs and the unique kind of eclectic evidence-based models we use to retain students, to help students with career and professional development. Um, and so lots to share about that. I, I direct the wellness side too, which was another piece of that was added um, to my position as I think the graduate dean saw the strength of a student affairs professional working on the academic side. So um, I went from directing the career and professional development aspects to health and wellness, and now I'm working on leadership development. So, and growing and trying to figure out how much I can manage, but uh, the power and the strength of an academic and student affairs collaboration. And um, also have written some articles around graduate student identity. And I, I'll stop there, but that's, that's me. Great. Thanks so much, Matt, for being here today. Sean. Hey there, Heather and everyone. Uh, thanks for inviting me to today's panel. Um, I actually got my start with the one and only Chris Goldie, um, who is now out at Stanford. Um, she was my mentor and advisor eons ago. And at the time, as a doc student, I was running around with a bunch of scientists. And uh, I was curious as to why their experience was dramatically different than mine. Uh, and given that Chris was really focusing on socialization, um, I ended up doing my dissertation sort of as an extension of some of her work, looking really at the socialization experiences and the transition experiences of first year doctoral students in the hard sciences. Um, and I kind of left that work, um, pursued some other identity-based work, and then a number of years ago came back to visit grad student socialization as a faculty member and really thinking about it from a mentoring perspective. And mentoring, coaching, and advising is really the emphasis of my work these days. Because as a faculty member, it feels like that's what I do a lot of. That's what I do really well. And I noticed that there is a difference in those students who get coaching and mentoring in a different way from just advising. Their socialization experiences are different. Their um, academics are different, their outlook is different, um, and even their time to degree is slightly different. And that continues to be what my work is focused on. Um, and I'm really interested in the mentoring experiences of international students and of those students who are um, of a minority identity. And since I work at a historically black university, I also really think about what are those experiences of the students at HBCUs and other MSIs? Great, we are definitely gonna talk more about mentoring, coaching and advising um, within today's broadcast. Thanks for bringing that up, Sean. Um, Nicole, tell us a little bit about you. Thanks, Heather. Thanks, Heather. Um, I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. Um, besides being a full-time doctoral candidate, I hope to finish this year. Everybody pray for me. Um, <laughs> um, I serve as a graduate assistant for the Vice President Dean of Graduate Education here at Virginia Tech, uh, Karen DePaul. Um, I'm part of, I run several initiatives for her. One in particular that started is the Academy for uh, Graduate Teaching Assistant Excellence, which is also called VT Great. Um, I coordinate that program, developing uh, membership selection, programming around improved teaching for our graduate 
uh, graduate students, professional students, and postdocs. Um, also, in addition, I'm actually in charge of developing our inclusion and diversity uh, badge program that our students can actually acquire and add to their repertoire so they'll be more marketable um, while they're on the job market, either for faculty or administrative positions. Um, currently, um, my, my dissertation research surrounds uh, the personal identity formation among Black women doctoral students across disciplines. Um, what I found is that during my doctoral study, um, identity development does not stop. It just changes. And I want to find out what is happening among this particular population during this time period. Um, and I also do some research also that I'm focusing on is thriving in graduate students. Um, you're always taught in graduate school, you just need to survive, um, but we need to approach it very differently so students can thrive through this process and actually have the process that they want to have and be successful. Awesome. Thank you so much. That, those are all interesting topics too. Uh, we will be discussing. Paul, tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you here today. Sure. Well, I'm, I'm from a, a very traditional student affairs background. Um, I started off working with students actually as a football coach many years ago. And uh, to pay the bills as a coach, I was a residence director and sort of had a career shift. And uh, so anyways, I've done heavily stuff with leadership and Greek life um, and eventually decided that I need to get my PhD in uh, higher ed to, to move up the ladder. And so I am currently working on my doctorate at Michigan State. Uh, my research interests are uh, in the work-life uh, balance domain. I look a lot about at boundaries and flex styles and how people set their boundaries and try to find a fit between their boundaries and their their sort of their personality and their their job or in some cases their 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 line of study. Um, and so that's been interesting to me. Um, I, I currently work at Rackham Graduate School. Uh, I got the bug for for working with grad students when I was a grad assistant at Michigan State. I did leadership programming and career services for doc students there. Um, I really like working with grad students. It's personal to me still at this point, um, but I really do think that grad students are um, at some campuses, maybe not uh, underappreciated or the, the resources aren't as robust for them in a lot of cases. And um, this is a really important time in their lives and they do a lot for for universities around uh, around the country. And I, I, so I'm really interested um, in, in this topic because I think uh, we have, there's a lot of, there's so much potential to do so much good for students out there. Awesome, thanks so much, Paul. Yeah, I think for, for many of us, uh, this is not just a professional um, interest, but also a very personal interest. So um, the next question actually, hopefully, uh, I don't know, it'll probably benefit me, although I, third year into my program, um, and, but any graduate students who are watching today, we're, we're curious about um, those of you who have completed, uh, what would you have done differently during your graduate school experience, kind of knowing what you know now and knowing the work that you do in the scholarship um, as well? Um, Sean, we're going to start with you first. We don't have enough time for me to go into everything. Um, <laughs> um, One thing, two things, yeah. yeah. So I think one of the big things would probably be that I not hold down a full-time job while I was also in grad school full-time taking literally four classes every semester for um, what seemed like an eternity um, because that really diminished my ability to engage with my peers and faculty. Um, that was also, I think, because my program was a little more practitioner-focused, 
um, as opposed to research focused, even though the faculty were heavily researched, which leads me to the point of making time to connect with faculty aside from your primary advisor um, and really asking to be involved in their work, be involved in projects. Um, I didn't get as much writing experience as I really wish that I could have. And as a faculty member, I absolutely understand why faculty sort of operate the way they do sometimes in terms of writing and scholarship. But I think making a point to sit down with faculty and get to know them, ask for what you need. I almost never did that. Um, so faculty didn't know what I was really looking for. And I would definitely do that differently again. And again, some of my participants in my studies have talked about that very thing. That's great advice. I think um, one of the concerns I have is, you know, how how often doctoral students know that they need to be their own advocate and ask for those uh, things that they need. So that's great advice as well. Carmen, tell us a little bit about what you wish you would have uh, done differently during your grad school. Well, I think Sean kind of um, hit the nail with the hammer when he said asking questions. Um, I was a first generation college student and also a first generation graduate student. And so I didn't really understand how I was supposed to operate in the space or that I had agency. And it was my expectations that my advisors and my teachers would provide me all of the things that I needed to come out and be a holistic doctor student and that just wasn't the case I learned halfway through that I had agency and power in those relationships and I did need to go to faculty and talk to them engage and, and to be in their projects um, another piece of advice I think I would give um, doctoral students is to have um, work-life balance and that as difficult as it is, it was one of the things that I think helped me keep my sanity when I was in my PhD program, because you can't be all about schoolwork and you can't be all about family or things outside of school. And if you don't have a balance between the two, you're gonna be unhappy. Um, so trying to figure out what that looks like for you and making that happen um, will probably be the other piece of advice um, to make sure that you do as a graduate student. Thanks so much. I don't do that very well at all. <laughs> Matt, tell us a little bit about what you wish you would have done differently. Well, I really appreciate Sean and, and Carmen's um, responses. You've taken my answer. So I'll come up with some new stuff. Um, I'd say managing stress, I think is very, very important. I, the, the notion of taking care of your mind and your body and your spirit and your emotions when you're engaged in one of the most challenging experiences that you're going to undergo as a human being, I think. Um, I encountered um, my shadow in some cases. I encountered my fear around my own abilities. Um, I came to find that I had the imposter syndrome. I think that's a really important concept for doctoral students and also for uh, graduate level administrators and anyone teaching advanced degree people. Um, we have this uh, syndrome called the imposter syndrome and with this um, goes issues of perfection and I had no idea I was doing some of these things. Um, in some cases being afraid of being found out that that I might not be as smart as I thought I was and for those who are listening the imposter syndrome um, one of the things that, that goes along with it is it's usually somebody from, from an underrepresented minority group. I'm a first-generation college student. So as I was figuring out doctoral education, it was all new to me. 
and I had developed coping mechanisms in my own educational experience that led me um, to hiding in my graduate education. So I'd say as soon as you can just acknowledge how you're um, interacting in your doctoral program, this is for doctoral students or graduate students. And then as an administrator, this took off when I was 33 years old sitting at the associate dean's meeting. And I'm like, how in the world did I get here? And, and to learn that it was this imposter syndrome. So addressing that, um, there's a lot of literature on it. And, and then I would say I would have used student affairs more. I would have used the graduate school more. Um, one of the best things I ever did as a graduate student when I was almost done with my PhD was walk into career services and had somebody review my CV. And I could not believe how much help I got from this, this arm of student affairs. And the graduate school and all the robust programming that is done in graduate schools now. So I would have used that. And um, I think the last thing I wanted to say was a quote by Brene Brown about this notion of being vulnerable and asking questions and asking for what you need because that's where life shifted for me as a doc student. As I asked my advisor, do I really need to do that? And he said, no. And this was, a, this was like a course in credits, six credits. And I said, I got two kids, a third one on the way, and this program just doesn't seem like it's built for me. Do I really need to do that? I was going to quit. And he said, no. And I walked out of his office with nine credits done. And um, I wish I would have picked up on asking good questions earlier on in my doctoral program. And so the quote is by Brene Brown, vulnerability is the, the birthplace of love, belonging, joy, courage, empathy, and creativity. It is the source of hope, empathy, accountability, and authenticity. If we want greater clarity in our purpose or deeper or more meaningful spiritual lives, vulnerability is the path. And so I have found that to be true ever since being vulnerable in that moment. So I am a gigantic fan of Brene Brown. Uh, those of you who have, have uh, interacted with me. So thank you for bringing up that quote, Matt. I think it's vulnerability is, is key. Um, I think the longer I'm in and the longer, the more I find out the things that I don't know. Right. Um, so we've had a couple of questions that have come in, I think, that relate to, I think, what we're going to talk about next, um, which has to do with the graduate school experience being very different for a whole lot of different reasons for different people. Um, so they, as I mentioned in the opening, range from 22-year-old right out of their undergrad um, master's students to folks like me who worked for 15 years before coming back for my PhD. Um, you know, people with decades of professional experience getting graduate program um, experience, those who work full time versus those who are uh, going through and have a GA ship um, to fund their program. So I'm curious about this, you know, across all of these experiences and needs, um, are there some common needs or experiences? Um, Paul, do you want to talk a little bit about this um, with regard to the programs you run and and how you've identified what those common needs are. Sure. Well, I think uh, there's three kind of common needs that I think uh, are, I think, paramount here. So the first is money. Um, I mean, yes, students need funding, but I also think, and that's that's very real depending on what your package looks like and your program, but there's also this level of most of us going to grad school, especially as a doctoral student, you know, if you're on a full, 
you know, whether you're getting fully funded from a college or you're getting partial funded, there's a level of you're kind of making do. There's a lot of that, right? So it's not just about the funding to pay for tuition and books, but it's also the, the money to live, right? And and so we know that uh, finances are a big stressor, usually in the top three stressors for graduate students. So there's always this issue of funding, having uh, money to sort of get by and money to do things, right? I mean, uh, in terms of it could be international uh, research experiences or going to conferences, right? So it's always around. So there's this issue of funding that I think is common, I think across the board in most graduate schools, uh, graduate, graduate students. Um, there's also the sense of transition. No matter what program students are in, there's a level of, this is their, usually their first time at the university, you know, uh, and definitely it's their first time in a graduate program. And so they're going from, let's say they went, you know, traditional undergrad, program or a master's program into a doc program, they're still, they're taking all that knowledge they had in their previous program and a lot of times they're starting over again, right? And so, um, so there's that level of that they're transitioning for the first time and they, even though we can't assume that they have all the resources, the needs, they, a lot of ways they're back at square one. I know that for me, you know, I was a, a professional in the field for many years and I went back full time to do my coursework on my doctorate and I felt very similar to similar to how I felt as when I was a freshman in, in undergrad, and so that that transition piece is really big. And I think the third part is is that sense of belonging and and building community. Um, just because you're in a, a grad program doesn't necessarily mean uh, you're going to find community. And so I think it's really important for us as administrators to make sure that student we kind of meet that need. Um, I know in my work at Rackham, one of my big major duties is to work with affinity groups and identify programs and experiences for them to kind of come together and or address their needs and their concerns. And so that's that's really important. So those, those are the three I think are, are, are really important for grad students. Those are the, the most common ones that I see. Awesome. I mentioned the uh, full-time and part-time student status uh, factors. So Carmen, can you talk a little bit about how those experiences might be different? Um, across different types of students um, among different disciplines, full-time versus part-time? So I think there is a major difference actually between part-time and full-time. Um, um, full-time, you are pretty much emerged into the, the college. You're usually around more, you're taking more classes, which means you have more visibility with faculty, more opportunity to ask questions, um, more opportunities to kind of stop in the door to say, hey, what are you doing? Can I be involved with this project? Um, and part-time students um, just don't have that type of time. They're not on, on campus that much or as often. And so I, I feel that part-time students really have to um, work at building community and making those, um, making the time to connect um, with, with the institution and with faculty members. And I also think that faculty members need to do a little better job of connecting with part-time students. So for those students who are considering going into PhD programs or master's programs or any other kind of graduate program where you're thinking of going part-time, my main bit of advice would be go to an institution who understands and appreciates part-time students. Because when you're in, when you're going to an institution that really doesn't have uh, part-time students, the resources that they may have or the expectations that they may have will be very different versus an institution who understands some of the demands of, of part-time students. Yeah, so along with that, um, my friend Carrie actually brought this up when we were talking about questions because she works full-time on campus. Uh, how do you engage full-time students beyond coursework? You know, are there, are there mechanisms for getting full-time students kind of, you know, yes, you're going to class, but what are the other things um, that you might do? Mm -hmm. um, 
I think having them, um, I think it's a responsibility of both. So a lot of um, graduate institution programs will have a student-run organization where they may have some kind of social setting where students can come out and engage with each other and faculty. Um, sometimes they may offer um, workshops, be it on APA or working on your CV and things of that sort. Um, but also taking advantage of office hours, you know, and even if you may not necessarily have a particular question, just stopping in to your faculty member and saying, you know, I'm in your class. Um, can I talk to you about my research interests if you're a doctoral student? If you're master students, these are my professional interests. Because as faculty members, we don't necessarily know that all the time, but if you give us that information, that puts you on our radar. And so we're much better to be able to send emails if something pops up or we hear about something that you may be interested in. We'll have that information to try to connect you um, with those types of resources. Uh, but I think it's you know equal responsibility of the institution and the program to have events where students can come and be engaged with each other as well as faculty and then the students um, being able to take advantage of those opportunities. Uh, one thing that I learned as a graduate student was that so much was on me as a graduate student to figure out what I need and then um, be able to figure out how to get it. <laughs> and so being connected with your peers, your other colleagues um, who are going through the process with you um, is also a really good idea to try to figure out how to create that community. Great. We've had um, some great questions from Twitter. Jackie Below asked, um, I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, Jackie. Uh, what are the differences between master's and doctoral students and how might the student affairs profession um, support or focus differently based on the type of graduate student in the, I guess, the year? Sean, do you want to tackle that one first? Sure. I think part of it comes down to understanding the career goals and having honest conversations. Master's students should have different career goals than doc students. So how do then we as student affairs divisions help support those in collaborations with faculty, with programs, uh, with career services, with internships, externships? Um, what, what do we do for them? Uh, because each of those career trajectories looks very different based on prior experiences as well. So I think that that's part of it is not as, not everyone wants to quote be a higher ed administrator because that's too generic what is it that people really want to do and not everyone even wants an academic career what about plenty of people that want to go outside of that mm -hmm. what does that look like so i think it really comes down to understanding who the student is what the career goals are and how do we collaborate and work internally with that great um so the other kind of focus area that some folks are tweeting about, Paul Eaton has asked about supporting online graduate students. And uh, I, I think that's a whole other uh, potential issue. Um, Sean, do you want to also talk about that? And then Paul, sure. you um, This speaks directly to my experience right now teaching hybrid classes, particularly with students who aren't even familiar with how that world really operates and works. Um, including some international students. So what I found is that I really have to make myself available for them in a completely different way. I set up Skype office hours, I set up Google Hangout office hours, I make it clear that um, I am available for them to support them because they're not going to see me every week. Um, and even if I'm teaching fully online, I do the exact same thing. 
um, and using technology, um, something as simple as posting a one minute, hi, this is who I am introduction and then having other people sort of do that in what I think of as digital narratives of who are you um, so that people can get to know each other. And I think that that's one way that we can support students because then we're not just an online name, we're an actual entity, we're someone who cares. Paul? Sure. From a programming perspective, um, which is sort of where I had most of my experience, I think um, there's a lot of simple, I mean, technology has made that a lot easier. So I think it's, you know, if we're doing an in-person an in um, seminar, some sort of program, um, it, it's, li it's live streaming it in, right? It's, it's taping it and then posting it online. It's, it's in trying, to invert, trying to immerse them in it. It's having someone on Twitter taking questions, which I've, I've done in the past with programming, and that, that helps uh, with online students and also, I think, with students who might be commuters who might, have, who might not be able to get there that day or, or can't, uh, part-time students can't traditionally attend a lot of on-campus events. So I think uh, going the way of digital content is really important, uh, I think, in meeting the needs of online students. I know whether I've been working with graduate students or undergrads, whenever programs or certain initiatives come up, it's becoming, it becomes, it's become more and more common that I get a question that, hey, I'm an online student um, and I want to participate in this. Is there any way you can adapt it or is there an online version? So I think it's thinking about how we can adapt those types of things. And and in some cases, it's, I mean, like Skype is a great thing. I've had Skype and phone call. Um, I, I'm a strengths finder facilitator. So I've done strengths sessions online and over the phone with, with students individually or in small groups. And so I think it's just thinking about ways uh, technology can, uh, in, can support the programs we do and uh, and reach a broader audience. We are getting so many questions about online students. I think I am going to make this a separate episode because I think we have so much we could talk about from advising and mentoring um, to crossover between what does what do online students need that might be similar to part-time students. Um, so thank you to all of you who are tweeting about that. Um, if we have time, we'll kind of return to this topic because I think it relates to many of our follow-up questions. Um, you know, I, I am curious about whether there are online students, master's students, doctoral students, or across different disciplines. Like, how do we know? You know, what kinds of assessment tools exist? Um, how, how do you get graduate students to respond to assessment? I know, Matt, I just got one from I think your office um, asking me to complete a survey around campus climate, belonging, and satisfaction. Uh, can you, Matt, can you talk a little bit about that, that uh, survey and that data and how, what you're hoping to gain and answer that question? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it takes me all the way back to when I first started. Um, I got a hold of Chris Goldie, so Sean, I know her too. Um, she had written the most comprehensive uh, doctoral dissertation on doctoral attrition. And I went through and I looked at her questions as I was starting my role uh, working with doctoral students. And I just called her and I said, listen, I've been asked to look at career and professional development of doc students. Can I, can I um, use some of these questions or talk me through this? So she advised me as I was building my own assessment. I think that's really important. She's one of the first people to really look at doctoral attrition. How many people know that in the aggregate, 50% of doctoral students don't finish their degrees? That was a surprise to me when I started years ago. And then as a student affairs person, given that we use this eclectic combination of developmental theories and theories around ret uh, retention and, and attrition, um, how do we take and modify our own student development paradigms and start looking at graduate student identity, graduate student development? 
not a lot that changes. So I just did what a PhD, I didn't even know I would do this after my doctoral socialization and PhD. But the first thing I did was a lit review, right? It's like, oh, I changed. I have altered my whole identity as a researcher. And it just happens like that. That's what socialization does. It's like internalized. So I found that graduate students are one of the highest at-risk groups on college, campuses, on college campuses for mental distress, including depression, anxiety, thoughts of suicide. 10% of graduate students uh, consider suicide. That just, that blew me away. Um, there's a systematic and structural um, incongruency, mismatch. This is what Chris Goldie came up with. It's not changed a whole lot. The number of PhDs produced versus the availability of academic jobs. So the, the vast majority of PhDs are now, um, they're departing the academic profession, uh, sometimes because of their experience in doctoral programs, but many times um, because there's just not an, there's not an available academic job. So there, there's it. There's enters career services into do, doctoral student experience, um, departmental culture. Um, this was a, a more literature from Lovitz may um, even increase the narrowing of a student's outlook and sense of self. In general, the more opportunities for integration of student the student received in doctoral education, and here's your integration stuff in student affairs that we get in our master's programs. The more integrated the student became. So academic and social integration, there's Tenno. All this stuff applies at the graduate level. It's just different because we have to drill into the department. It's not students in the aggregate to really understand doctoral education. You can drill into even to the college and, and these development models, you have to go further into the actual discipline. So I say all of that um, to, to say I did a lit review, and I've stayed on top of the literature, but from a student affairs professional background. And so then why did you see that survey, Heather? <laughs> it's because I'm building something new. Right now I'm trying to build um, an argument. So if you ever wanna make change in higher education um, with the professoriate, because that's a whole different um, profession than student affairs, you better bring your data and you better bring a solid research argument um, and assessment data for why you want to do what you do. And they listen. They listen very well when you come equipped to speak their language. This is one of the weaknesses I found in student affairs. We don't come equipped with the science of our background. We have a solid literature base. We have a solid proven design. So just think about person environment theory. Behavior is a function of person environment. Think about chickering. Um, I'm bringing back some old school student development paradigms. They all fit for graduate students. So developing competence. Right now I'm playing around with self-determination theory, the innate psychological need for competency, autonomy, and relatedness. And the extrinsic motivation, when there's an incongruency between the intrinsic motivation that brings a graduate student to, to Michigan State or to any other doctoral program, and the extrinsic. So I've done a self-determination assessment as well that shows if you really buy into this evidence-based model. What do you think is happening um, if there's an incongruency between the intrinsic motivation that brought a student and the extrinsic motivation. It's yeah. stress. Yeah. It's conflict. It's, and when these things, the imposter syndrome interacts with this and expectations haven't been, been set solidly for, for what it takes to get a graduate degree and students are afraid to ask questions, you got stress. And yeah. these, this was one of the major impediments to a graduate. It's the number one national college health assessment issue for graduate students is stress. 
then depression and anxiety, relationship issues, all the things that follow. So the reason I sent that survey is because I'm trying to build a leadership fellowship um, within the college. It's it's a it's a, a chosen leader that's gone through my summit, my leadership academy, Paul Artali, uh, our, our esteemed panelist, built in his year as a fellow here. It's now become a training ground for student leaders to lead in their colleges and to build community in their colleges. So what I hope to use with that is I hope to use the data to go back to the graduate program director, to the graduate associate dean of that college, because you saw there were questions related to belonging, questions mm -hmm. related to the culture, my relationship with my advisor. Uh, do I feel my professional and career development needs are being met within my college? All of that, those questions are for me to lead change here. That's great. I can go on and on about that. Um, let me stop. That's great. No, that's great. I, you know, I also am really curious, Nicole, based on your background and study um, in particular, about how all this relates to socialization and across um, race in particular. Um, and so if you could talk a little bit about that and maybe, you know, tagging on what Matt said, but then also with your experience. Okay. First, I'd like to say um, I'd like to challenge uh, the faculty that are listening is to start teaching the relation of student development theory and graduate and professional students and how that can be used and applied. Um, that's a big gap um, within the field. So please do that. Um, in regards to socialization, the one thing we don't really talk about is is a very common, common concept that happens K through 12 and even undergraduate, which is educational neglect. Um, what I found throughout my process is that a number of students that are either underrepresented or come from a marginalized group do not receive the same information or have the, the social capital to navigate the space the same way majority students are able to. Um, I'll take an example. One day I was sitting with my cohort and I had no idea how much regalia actually cost. No idea. Um, and so one of my cohort members was just like, oh yeah, my family gives me money, you know, every holiday for regalia. And I had no idea, like just basic, one of those things that were just very common, I had no idea being a first gen student and being a woman of color. Um, and so what I've learned and seen in my preliminary research is that a lot of people don't know how to use the advocacy and make space for themselves. Um, or they knew how to do it in undergrad, but because the rules are different in the graduate realm, they still don't know how to navigate that and create that for themselves. And some of the challenges I've had uh, personally as a graduate student was finding that agency again. Um, and challenging and creating the experience that I wanted um, as a doctoral student. And I took chances that other people would not take. I don't really recommend changing your chair like in the middle of your dissertation, but it needed to be done for me to make the progress I needed to make and do the topic that I wanted to do. Um, so those are not penalties. And I think we, we, we tend to think about there's gonna be a backlash of some sort or, or repercussions if we make these changes and demand the kind of education that we want. And that changes socialization a lot among, I would say, marginalized groups and underrepresented students. Carmen, you have a thought on that as well? Yeah, um, Nicole, you make really good points about socialization and it, it really um, triggered me to kind of think a little bit about my work because I'm in a process 
of developing this model of self-socialization. So I really mm -hmm. think that socialization is twofold. I think that the department, you come in and the department tries to socialize you to the field and the culture. Mm -hmm. and at some point, you begin to self-socialize, meaning you begin to, almost like McDonald's, right? You start selecting the things off the yes. that you want for yes. yourself to, to socialize yourself to the, to, to be able to get the things that you need in order to be um, successful and to progress through your program in a way that makes sense to you. And so I think we move from the socialization of the department to the self-socialization. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's a really interesting concept and something that can be explored more. Something. Yeah, and I, I think this also relates to another question I was going to ask you, Carmen, related to how um, those who work in graduate schools or colleges need to interface with students throughout their time. So beyond kind of that entry point and graduation point, like what are all the other ways that we should be interfacing and, and you know, helping in that socialization process? Because it doesn't just like happen in the first month and then now you're socialized and good to go, right? Well, I think this is something that we, I think that Sean kind of brought up before, and it, it relates back to mentoring. And one of the most important lessons that I think I learned, and I try to teach my students who are going out in the world to be student affairs professionals, is that you cannot have one mentor. One person cannot give you everything that you need. And so you have to be strategic about getting um, uh, mentors aligned with what you need. So you may have one person that you talk to about advising. You may have one person that you talk about personal things with. Um, me being a student of color, I had a, a someone that I talked to about being a black woman in a predominantly white program and what does that look like and how do I navigate? And so having your, your advisor, having someone who could be your coach and having someone who will be your sponsor is very different. Um, one of the things that I experienced um, as a graduate student was I had a lot of opportunity to go to conferences, but I didn't understand exactly what I was supposed to do at those conferences until I connected with a mentor that said, no, you're, you're not just going here to present. You need to be setting up meetings with people. You need to have conversations with other faculty members. You need to build your network. So as you're continuing to go through your graduate program, you're building this community of scholars for when you graduate. That's something that I didn't know. And so I think that for faculty members, we have to be, or, or student affairs professionals, we have to be very clear and precise in telling students, like, these are the things that you need to do in order to create that socialization as you go through. I almost feel like we need to have an unwritten rule handbook. Like, there's things that everyone's going to tell you that you need to do. You need to apply. You need to go to class. You need your internship. You need your dissertation. But it's all this other stuff that people yeah. assume that students know and marginalized students and sometimes majority students, they just don't know that. And so um, I think combining those two together can really help students in their socialization process. I hope that answered the question. Yeah, absolutely. And so both of you bring up mentoring um, and Sean also I think has, has talked a little bit about that. And we talked about advising, moving towards mentoring and all of the different ways um, I found that I received mentoring from my peers, um, from other students who are further along in the program, guidance committee, et cetera. Can, Sean, can you talk a little bit about the ways that um, mentors in particular can support graduate students and anyone else who wants to also talk about this? Sure. Um, much of the research 
his, the historical research and even um, contemporary research really looks at mentoring functions from two domains. One is the career function and one is the psychosocial function. And all of my grad student participants, when they discussed their mentoring relationships, it truly fell into one of these two buckets, but it looked very different than what you might think of as a, a professional mentoring experience. So career functions are those skill-based networking, scholarly productivity kinds of functions that I think we as faculty and advisors typically do. You gotta go to this conference. You really need to be thinking about your research topic. Um, go see the writing center, like skill-based. The second part is the psychosocial domain, which is about identity development, both personal and professional. It's about confidence building. It's about um, general health and well-being. And again, that's the piece I think that most mentors don't really think about and they don't pay attention to. And they just know, oh, my grad student is suddenly depressed, suddenly not there, suddenly A work has become C work or not even turning it in. Well, that's probably because there's some psychosocial issues going on and we should probably pay attention to that. And speaking to the point of not every single person is going to fill all of those having multiple mentors to really tap into that so that somebody might be career and somebody else might be psychosocial and i think that that's really important no single person is going to fulfill all an individual's needs it doesn't happen for us personally my spouse does not fulfill all of my needs and so that's why i have friends that's why i have work colleagues that's why i do other things so we should not expect our graduate students to get everything from us as the advisor but we should also help advocate to set them up because students also don't know how to ask for an advisor. They don't know what it means to have a mentor. So we need to train students and we need to train faculty about that process. And most really strong mentoring relationships happen informally. It's not a, oh, here's student A and faculty B, put them together. And now there's a mentoring relationships. But yeah. we need to cultivate those kinds of opportunities so that they can really develop. That's great. Nicole, so as a current doc student, can you talk a little bit about mentoring and how this has played out for you? Um, one of the key things about that, I, there's always there's a mentor, a sponsor, and an advocate. And I have several of those people in my life. Um, one of my key mentors here on campus is not even in my discipline. Um, and I find that extremely rewarding. It challenges me in a different way intellectually. Um, also gives me a different perspective on how to look at things um, throughout my academic career. Um, also sponsorship. Um, I have a great relationship with several senior level administrators on campus and they have been great supporters of things that I would like to do and they would like to see me doing um, and help with additional funding to help me do those things. Um, and also person being an advocate. Some of those sponsors and those mentors are also my advocate in spaces where I'm not there and they can speak for me or um, about me or my experience in a, in a light that will bring, will bring some improvement oh, either in my situation or other students that look like me. And I think that's been really key in my graduate career, especially now at the dissertation stage when you're away from everybody. It also helps with that engagement and staying connected um, to campus because you have these people that are ingrained on both sides of the house embedded in your life. 
Awesome, that is great. Uh, we are already running up against <laughs> time today. Um, hard to believe. And so I think I'm going to go to final thoughts, but I'd love to hear two different po points of um, uh, final thought from each of you. Uh, given that we have an audience that is both student affairs educators who are serving graduate students, as well as folks who are current graduate students, um, or maybe potential thinking about graduate student graduate school at some point, um, I'd like to hear two things. One, uh, what should student affairs professionals know working with graduate students? What's your final thought on that? And then two, what should students think about before they embark upon a graduate school journey? Um, Carmen, do you want to start with us? Sure. Um, so I think answering the first what should student affairs professionals know? I think um, first that there is a graduate student population. Um, as Nicole pointed out, we don't really get any of that in student affairs master's program. And actually when I was at Buffalo State before I came to Eastern, I actually created a course on graduate student uh, affairs, which was um, very well attended because you don't get that information. So for student affairs professionals, just to know that there is this um, another population, and although a lot of what we know about undergraduate students transfers, that population is, is different. Mm -hmm. They're older a lot of times, there's more responsibilities, and so with that comes different challenges. And so just to be aware um, that there's different challenges for graduate students. And then the second question, um, what should students think about um, when they're thinking about a graduate program? I think they need to step back and look at their lives holistically and see mm -hmm. do I have time to commit to this process, be it a master's program for two years or a PhD program or a professional program, do I have the time in my life to commit to this? And then really this terminology that you may have heard of about fit is very important. Um, when I first started off in my graduate education, I went to a program because it was convenient and I was miserable because nothing that I wanted to research, nothing that I wanted to talk about in classes, no one cared about because it, that was not the focus of the program. And so I ended up leaving that program and going into the higher education program at U of M. But FIT is really important. So take some time, look at what the um, faculty members are researching, look at what the classes that you may be taking, and make sure that you make a really good decision about FIT. So those would be my two pieces of advice. That is great. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, Matt, final thoughts on those two uh, questions. What should student affairs professionals know, and then what should folks who are considering graduate school do? Yeah, there's 11,000 graduate students at MSU, so Carmen's comment about really knowing there is a population <laughs> of students on campus that have a tremendous impact on undergraduates. Their TAs, their research assistants, their graduate assistants, and attending to their needs is, is vital to the success of the institution. So I think that's really important. But I think for a new a student affairs professional, there's a, there's a growing literature. So getting your head around uh, the literature on graduate student development. So we say student development, but there's a growing literature on graduate student development um, that I think is really important. And then the second thing would be how to lead and influence change in graduate education or if you want to look at it just from student affairs, how to lead organizational change in terms of graduate student affairs. So there's student affairs. It might as well have been undergraduate student affairs at Michigan State when I got here. The director's really focused on undergraduates. And so I came and I'm like, wow, your leadership, what are you doing for grad students? Wow, your career services, what are you doing for? I was like a broken record. So 
there's also positions available. So for those of you who are thinking about a career change or maybe want to work with graduate students, Paul Artali probably can tell you this. There's a growing number of professional positions in graduate schools and graduate student affairs. So they're located in graduate schools. They're located as joint appointments in graduate schools and student affairs. And, and they're located just in student affairs. And then all the units that go along with that. And if it hasn't been created, like Nicole, some of the work you're doing, I could see your work turning into something vital for graduate student success uh, down the road, if you're not already thinking about that. But um, <laughs> perfect for me there. That's great. Thanks, Matt. Um, Paul, what are your final thoughts? Um, I'll echo first that number one, graduate students exist, so acknowledge that. And I think that the needs are different, and I speak mainly from a doctoral framework, that the needs of doctoral students at different times in their careers uh, are different. So someone's coming in is going to be different than someone going through the comps process versus someone who's in dissertation writing. Um, so that when they think about programming interventions or just how to engage, that there are these sort of different stages to the doctoral process and that these can impact students. But uh, yeah, but if nothing else, the grad students exist and that if, I'll be blunt. So if your answer, when someone asks, what do you do for grad students? If the answer is we don't do something or, well, we can just do what we do for undergrads and you probably need to rethink the programming a little bit. It needs to be a little bit more targeted because yeah, I'll just leave it there before I go up on, on my soapbox. Um, but, and, and grad, Grad places, I think to, to my second point, uh, the second part of this question is grad places, grad schools are a great place to work. It's a great place to uh, to work with uh, students in, in a bit different light. Uh, my advice to anyone wanting to look to do the degree, it would be to do a cost benefit analysis of whether um, this is something you want. So not just a financial cost benefit of what, what you get through this process, but is this, what's this gonna really do for you? Um, uh, at this point in your career, at this point in your life, and to really think about that and not necessarily to think you have to do it because maybe this is, it's the time to do it, like on my little career map. And so to really think about that. Um, and then if you decide to go into grad school, which is, it's a really great experience most of the time, uh, I think then to, I, I think then you have to learn, learn to build a network if you don't know how to do that yet. Learn that skill, because I think a lot of what we've talked about here today has to do with building networks, getting mentors, accessing resources, and so learn that skill. And so when you so when you get to grad school, you've got, you've got some of those strengths in place, because that's what's gonna help you get through grad school. That's what's gonna make it a richer experience. Um, I mean, for me personally, everything from having, you know, my, my children have been born as me being a grad, a grad student. I've gone through comps, I've gone through medical stuff, I've gone through my academic identity, my professional identity, all of it being enriched by the networks I built and that were helped, supported for me uh, by being in grad school. Great. Um, yes, life changes. Life goes on, right? Um, that's, that's a critical thing to recognize. Nicole, your final thoughts. Uh, quickly, just the complexity of grad and professional student lives um, and engage in a literature. Those are the top two that I think, and understanding that the process for professional students, master's students, and doctoral students are different, and it's different because also because of disciplines um, and knowing that difference. Number two, what you should know, allow yourself grace in this journey. It's not easy. It's hard. Sometimes it's great, sometimes not so great, but allow yourself that grace as you're making your way. Sometimes your family and your friends are not going to be pleased. Sometimes your faculty is not going to be pleased, but give yourself grace. That is so true. So true. 
Um, I wish I paid more attention to that. <laughs> okay, Sean, your final thoughts. Sure, uh, and I'm gonna do this in the reverse. So I think that students really need to think about not the process of going to grad school or being in a grad program. Too often that's what they focus on, but what does it mean to be in the role of graduate student? What does that look like? What does that feel like? It's not about just going to grad school. There's a whole set of machinery behind that. And so you really have to think about that, which then leads me to how do student affairs and administrators and even faculty support that? Well, know and recognize that it's a role, one of many that students occupy. It's not just a thing and they don't just come to class because there's a whole, again, there's this whole machine that's operating at the same time. So understanding what that role looks like and feels like in conjunction with all the other roles that people occupy. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, um, thank you so much to everybody who contributed. Matt had to jump off, he had another meeting. Um, but to the four of you who are on uh, now, I am so appreciative of your time. And I thank you too for everybody in the back channel there were some great questions. Zarine, I'm sorry we didn't get to your question about professional versus research uh, graduate students because those are really important distinctions as well. Um, we are tweeting out a number of different uh, resources right now, thanks to Alex. And so take a look at those. And um, I, I guess we'll just wrap up at this point. So thanks again to my panel, to our sponsors, ACPA and M. Stoner. Uh, coming up later this month, Tony and I will be back on the stage at ACPA uh, hosting, again, the Contested Issues in Student Affairs live debates. Uh, we have six debates um, set up, which will explore all of the topics that I think we're, we're talking about behind our virtual water coolers from should ACPA and ASPA consolidate or revisit that consolidation conversation to our graduate students prepared uh, to enter the field. So if you're interested in watching that, you can join us live at ACPA on Tuesday, March 28th at 4.30 at the big stage, um, or we will also be broadcasting that um, on our uh, live feed as well. So if you're not going to be in Columbus, please tune in that way. Um, again, you can receive reminders about this and all of the other shows on Student Affairs Live by subscribing to our Higher Ed Live newsletter at higheredlive.com. I'm Heather Shea. Thanks again to the fabulous panelists today and to everybody who is watching. Make it a great week, everyone.